The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hi, everybody. This is John Zink, and uh, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. I am uh, honored and glad today to be joined by Mr. Scott Yako. He is the CTO of Sote. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay, great. Um, He is married, and uh, your wife's name again? Keiko. Keiko. Uh, Two teenage boys. What are their names? Uh, one is Seth and one is Kenji. Okay. And uh, sounds like a busy household. Uh, yeah. One's moved out living with his girlfriend up in Tahoe and the other one's uh, getting ready to graduate to go to college. So hopefully it will be much quieter very soon. <laughs> so you'll be empty nesters pretty quick. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm on, I'm on the other spectrum. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, so uh, it's going to be uh, years and years of noise at our yeah. house. Great journey, though. It's a great journey. Yeah, we're enjoying it. Uh, also, uh, there's a turtle named Jack. Yes, yes. What kind of turtle? Uh, the red-eared spring turtle, you know, lives 15 to 25 years and... It was uh, my ex-wife got it for my son, which means I ended up having to take care of it. So he's uh, he's in his tank and it's pretty low maintenance of all the pets in the world I've had. He's definitely the lowest maintenance pet that you have. Um, the only thing you got to do is clean the filter and set up a uh, food dispenser when you go on long vacations. So What, what do they eat? Uh, basically just pellets that you buy at uh, that or fish occasionally. Okay. Yeah. You know, we'll get some what are called feeder fish and put them in the tank and let them chase them around, and then he eats them. This is my first turtle on the podcast. <laughs> all right, all right. So. so you live in San Mateo, California, which is yep. in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, I've been there quite often. My wife actually, Carissa, who uh, you actually uh, knew uh, prior yep. to, um, I think you worked with her when you were at Safeway. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. 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 She- uh, providing IT services for us. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, Carissa grew up over in the Half Moon Bay area, and wow. uh, uh, in her younger years, would uh, spend a lot of time over in the San Mateo area. It's a it's wow. a bustling downtown with all kinds of great restaurants and bars and stuff like that. Yeah. It uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Midwest downtowns areas. The old you know old downtown. You got everything within three or four blocks food stores whatever so yeah downtown san mateo is a place i like to hang out and same with my wife and once covid's over hopefully we'll be able to start doing that again well speaking of midwest you've got a uh a, a sweatshirt on there that says dub bears so uh, are you from illinois or where are you from in the midwest i was i grew up in the midwest okay. um i was actually born in tennessee okay but, uh, Two years old, um, we moved to uh, Hobart, Indiana, which is just out, just at the edge of the Metroplex for Chicago. Okay. So our TV, everything comes out of Chicago. So yeah, I grew up uh, watching Walter Payton and The Fridge and um, 
you know, Ditka, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's just what you did on Sunday. And then obviously the Bulls and Michael Jordan. And, you know, it was it was a great, great time sports wise. It would have been like a trifecta if the Cubs had actually played as well as they do now. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had uh, in my little town. I was born and raised Mount Carroll, Illinois. It's actually yeah. two hours straight west of uh, Chicago before you get into Iowa and Wisconsin, right in the northwest corner. And uh, during that Super Bowl shuffle year, um, they had outside of the bars, they had a great big um, refrigerator that was painted with 72 on it. And that after the bars would close, guys would go out and take the fridge and move it to a different bar. And it would, oh. it, everybody would wake up the next morning and try to go out and look and see where the fridge ended up <laughs> from the night before. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. But yeah, that was, that was a great time to uh, watch uh, Chicago sports back then. Oh, yeah, it was, it was epic. I mean, seeing the documentaries and things of that sort today, it just, you know, it just brings back so many memories. And it was like, you know, when you're in the moment, it was like, you know, life is bustling and things of that sort. But looking back, it was like, wow, that, that was just an unbelievably great time in life. So you're a Bulls fan as well, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, I, I had a great time. It was during COVID, watched um, a documentary on the whole team. I think it was called The Last Dance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. Oh, it, yeah. Going back and reliving some of those times, were you actually, did you actually go to some of those games? Yeah, yeah, actually I did. Um, there was a couple of scenes where you couldn't tell who I was because I was so back far in the, the back area that, you know, I was this little blip, you know, maybe a pixel on the TV screen. But yeah, I was like, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on TV now. I'm famous. <laughs> it, it was so fun to watch all yeah. of that, uh, kind of relive all that stuff. And to see what they went through trying to control Rodman, yeah, <laughs> you know, like they said, you know, let's just free him up and then he'd take off and go to Vegas yeah. and then they had yeah. to go get him, wake him up and bring him back. back. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I remember, I mean, everybody in Chicago was like, is he dead? You know, <laughs> what happened to him? You know, you didn't really know the backstory. You just knew that he disappeared and nobody knew where he was and Everybody knew where he was. They just didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Well, I've got a, I have a Rodman story. So uh, wow. a couple years ago, uh, I'm a big fan of the 90s band Live. Mm. And uh, they were playing a surprise show at the Roxy uh, down in L.A. And I went down for the show. I'm <clears throat> standing up in the front row, uh, right in front of the bass player. And all of a sudden, this big black hand gets on my shoulder. I turn around. It's Dennis Rodman. Wow. And he goes, Hey, big guy, push me up on stage. So it was really awesome because Dennis Rodman called me the big guy. <laughs> and then I pushed him up on stage and I've got video of him dancing around with the band. Cool. And uh, he, he had pajama pants on, you know, yeah. classic Rodman. Rock classic Rodman. <laughs> what color hair did he have? Uh, it was just normal hair. I was very disappointed on the hair on the hair point. Oh wow! I have to talk to him about that. <laughs> no, that was pretty cool. So, who are your son's favorite teams? Did they uh, go along with you on the Midwest uh, teams? Neither or? of them are really into sports. Um, 
my oldest, um, Seth, he's, uh, he's into motorcycles and dirt bikes. So that's his world. He follows all of that kind of stuff. And, um, my younger Kenji, he's, uh, he's not really into sports. He's, he's more into, you know, all kinds of different things. I, I don't think he's really kind of settled down for one particular area in, in that. So no, they didn't really, they didn't really go along the lines that I did. Well, that motocross is a, a sport of its own and it's, yeah. uh, th- yeah. those guys are uh, crazy about their motocross. I've, I've got oh, a, yeah. a friend of mine that I graduated high school with back in Illinois. He started a motocross track and uh, it, it's amazing how big that sport is and how passionate those people are about their sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, he tried doing a um, kind of a video on uh, Instagram channel kind of thing beyond me. And I turn Instagram on, I look at it and say, okay, I don't know why I turned this on. <laughs> so, um, but you know, school, girlfriend, all of that kind of stuff that's kind of gone on the wayside for a while. But yeah, he was really into it. He had quite a few followers and, you know, he was out in that. He still goes out quite a bit and rides quite a bit out in the, the back country and stuff. So. so how has it been? I've got a lot of neighbors with teenagers during this COVID era. How has it been for you as a parent raising and guiding your kids through this COVID area, whether it's distance learning, distance working, um, you're kind of, um, guiding them through, uh, all the things that are going on. How's that been for you as a parent, um, working with the kids to get through that, uh, the, the COVID era? You know, it's, it hasn't been bad for me. It, it's been horrible for my boys. Um, especially, you know, Kenji, cause He's, you know, he's still a senior in high school. He's missing all of the senior stuff in high school in that. And, you know, I'm at high risk. So, you know, he's been super, super understanding and patient and, you know, restricting his activities, restricting hanging out with his friends who were, you know, they're invincible because they're 18, 19 years old and in that. And, uh, you know, being very, very cautious about bringing stuff home potentially. Um, so for him, I really feel, you know, I really feel for him. Um, but you know, the distance learning, I, I, we actually took it as an opportunity for, for him to prep for college, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, so, Hey, you know, this is your job. This is your senior in high school. You you know, that's the way the world's going to work. If you don't do your homework, nobody's going to tell you in college, you're just going to flunk out. Right. So, He's really taking it to heart and he's doing a really good job. I'm super, super proud of him in that, uh, um, you know, he's really, you know, I think he's really getting ready to, to, you know, start his adult life and he's got the right things in place in order to make that happen. He's got the discipline, he gets the things done uh, and that. So yeah, that was fantastic. It's, uh, I think, like I said, you know, you, uh, I, one of your other podcasts, somebody said, you know, you got lemons, you make lemonade. I don't like lemonade, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got oranges, you make orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's go back to when you were in school. Um, how were you as a student? Um, I was a lazy student, but I, I only did as much work as I had to in order to get bees in that, but it was all super easy for me. 
it was the only thing that I had a tough time with was the um, advanced math topics like um, analytical geometry. It was like, well, a point has, you know, no dimensions. I'm like, sure it does. I just put it on a piece of paper. It's got a width. It's got a diameter. It's got a thickness. What do you mean it has no, you know, no diameter? No, 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 no. It's that's that's a representation of it. I'm like, huh? I, I'm a I'm a very uh, visual, hands-on kind of person. So I didn't take well to that until I got into college and I got into calculus. I absolutely hated calculus because I'm like, I'm not solving anything here. Well, why am I, you know, why am I doing this to these equations? And he's right. Like, oh, so you can learn that later on. I'm like, I'm never going to use this. <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so yeah, I did enough to get by. Um, so the, the one area, like I said, I struggled was in the advanced math. But again, you know, most of those were not mandatory classes. So maybe I get a C in it, uh, things of that sort. Yeah. Other than that, that was about it. So yeah, high school was pretty easy. It was pretty boring for me. Um, college was fun. Uh, I went to local community college because family just couldn't afford to send me away to college. And, um, you know, I worked most of my college years, uh, in order to have as, uh, I like to say beer and pizza money on the weekends. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, you know, uh, I've always loved to learn. It's never been a challenge for me. And, you know, I think, that's the, been the secret sauce of my career is I'm always willing to roll up my sleeves, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how out of my wheelhouse it may be. I'm not going to do as good a job as somebody who's an expert, but you know what? I'll eventually get it done. I'll figure it out. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a quote unquote Midwest mentality um, that uh, I, I was such a slacker when it came to uh School, uh, high school. I, I never went to college. I mean, I, I went. I, I was a paramedic for a while, so I went to those courses. Um, but uh, I, I knew from the time I was in high school that I was not going to go to college. It just yeah. wasn't going to be in the cards for me, and I wasn't going to fool myself. I'm a realist. As I am to this day. If yeah. I'm not going to do something, I'm not going to do it. You know. So it's just one of those things that uh, I knew from a very early age that whatever I was going to do, I was going to have to work hard at it because uh, it. It just was in the car. It wasn't in the cards for me that I was going to go to school because my parents didn't have squat, you know, and uh, I sure as heck wasn't going to get any kind of uh, scholarships for my amazing brain because <laughs> that's not there either. But uh, I, I learned from my parents and other mentors while I was growing up, if you work your ass off, the sky's the limit, you know, yeah. and that's really what I've counted on. And thank God for those mentors. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, my parents fell in the in-between. They made enough to where I couldn't get any grants. And the Reagan years, you know, didn't help with that. Yeah. Then, but they didn't make enough to where they could uh, afford for me to, you know, pay. So I ended up with student loans back in the day when student loans were, you know, not such a horrible thing. I think I graduated from a college with $8,000 in student loan debt. And I thought that was the end of the world. I'm like, I'm never <laughs> right. going to be able to pay this back. And I hear what students are graduating with now. And I'm like, that's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to clarify too. It's like, when I say my parents didn't have squat, they had plenty to get our family by. And yeah, I yeah. was never hungry. And it's just like, it, sometimes I hear myself talk and I just want to slap my spoiled brat face and just go listen your mom and dad did great 
and yeah. gave you all you ever needed. Um, but sometimes, you know, you, you get accustomed to the new lifestyle that I lead and all this other crap. And you look back and I, I never wanted for anything my whole yeah. life. Yeah. And if I would have found a way to work harder, I could have went to college. I could have done everything I wanted to if I would have put my mind to it. But I didn't. I was too lazy yeah. at the time to even think about yeah. it. You know, um, I, I don't look necessarily lazy or whatever. I try to look at the positive. And you, you knew what you wanted to do and you did it. Yeah. That's what matters. So yeah. I went on and played in bands for years. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't have that self-realization, you know, Yeah. and end up being a living a miserable life. And that, that just sucks. Yeah. So what brought you to the West Coast in California? Well, um, Kind of had always been a dream. I moved west my entire life, Chicago. I moved to Colorado, lived there quite a long time, uh, and that. And then, um, where'd where'd you live in Colorado? Uh, well, I lived in three different places. I lived in Golden, Colorado. Uh, I started out there, and then I lived in Larkspur, which is about halfway between Denver and Colorado Springs, famous for the Renaissance Festival. Okay. And that, um, and then I lived in Aurora for a little while before I moved out to California. So I uh, had a tragic personal event, and uh, my late wife, um, her dream had always been for us to eventually get to California. The dot com bubble was going full speed in 1999. So after you know I got things kind of squared away and stuff, I decided that you know, it was time to move to Col California. And at least, you know, give a shot and see what uh, what she had always talked about and always dreamed about. She had lived there in her early teen or late teen years, early 20s uh, with her sister in L.A. And, you know, that was kind of her dream destination was to get back to California at some point. So I chose Northern California versus Southern because technology. But um, so, yeah, it was it was kind of kind of just finishing out a dream that she had that. You know, I wanted to go on the ride and see how see what it was like and fell in love with California and and, you know, deal with the things that are horrible about California. But look at the good things, the weather and and all of that. And I just stayed. So. So did your first wife pass when you were in Colorado? Uh, yes, she did. Yeah. Yeah. When we were living in Colorado, she passed um, in that. So, um, yeah. And, you know, there was. There was a lot of great memories there, but there was also, you know, it's a double-edged sword because you go around the street corner and you're like, oh, we had dinner there. Yeah. It's like, bad, you know? And after about a year, I just, I couldn't take that anymore. Yeah. Just, I, I gotta, I gotta get a fresh start. Yeah. So. Well, I've never experienced that before, but it's gotta be really tough. And then you've got a child um, at the same time. That's gotta be tough. All of a sudden you're a single parent, right? Actually, yeah, we didn't we didn't have kids. My first wife, my oh, okay. second wife, who um, I had a child with, I met out here. Uh, we got divorced, and then I met Keiko. She's my third. So, um, you know, in that, but uh, me and Keiko, we blended family, so we don't have any children together. Uh, my son came from my previous marriage, and her son came from her previous marriage. Oh, okay, the uh, smaller version of the Brady Bunch. Smaller version of the Brady Bunch. Yeah. So we just had, uh, speaking of Colorado, just had that um, horrible shooting yeah. that uh, took yeah. place out there. I mean, it's just like, these things just keep on coming. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I, I, 
you know, it's, and I hear the arguments back and forth on both sides. And, you know, my position is, yeah, I think you do have a right to have a gun, personal protection, things of that sort. You don't have the right to be able to mow people down on the streets. And, and I think we need to find a reasonable balance and we're, we're definitely not there. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an argument. Then I, I hate it when they politicize everything. It's yeah. just like, come on, you, you got you got a nutball that right. walks into a place and just starts mowing people down. Right. I mean, come on, get get the get the firearm out of an idiot's hand. Yeah, you know, you I know. Mean, I grew up. I learned to shoot with a bolt action twenty two rifle. Right. That did everything I needed it to do. Yeah. You know, if I were a hunter, then maybe I need something else. But, you know, 30 cartridge, you know, you know, strap two of them together and you got 60 rounds. You fire all of these rounds. I mean, they're, they're, they're killing machines. Everybody knows they're killing machines. Are they fun? Yeah, I've shot them. They're fantastic. It gives you a huge thrill. Do I think everybody should be able to have one just because they want one? Absolutely not. I'm right. sorry. It's not, not there, you know. Um, that so yeah no it's uh it's horrible um i really feel horrible for the officer who ran in oh yeah job and you know to me he uh, exemplifies the good in the police force and um you know we've suffered a lot over the last year and a half with the bad being highlighted um and it's unfortunately that he lost his life uh in the line of duty is a it is a difficult difficult world that we live in and anything we can do to make people's lives a little bit better i think you know we should at least try you know people act i think when it comes to politics it's like oh well if we do this we can never change it back and that's just not the case right so yeah amen to that i mean these these first responders are the first ones running towards the yeah. fire running towards the shots yeah. yeah you know while everybody else is running away yeah. And I think, you know, this last year with COVID really, really highlighted, you know, across the board, how dangerous the world they live in and how, in my opinion, underappreciated they really are for the effort and work that they do. Well, and the COVID thing has really showed us the heroism of somebody who's just standing behind working at a fast food counter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, the person working at Safeway or any of these grocery stores that are just, you know, they're not just making a living for themselves, but they're keeping people alive by working yeah. their job. You know, you, you mentioned Midwest kind of ethic and stuff. I was always taught, and you know, you know, whatever the person, you know, how lowly their job are, they're the ones that keep the business run. It's always the people at the bottom that keep everything running. And exactly. Know, I grew up with that and that's that's my philosophy and that's you know the way I try to manage and things of that sort and a lot of people and again my opinion take those people for granted and saying oh you know you couldn't do better and things of that sort well that doesn't matter they're still people they're still human beings and you know they're at risk they you know, even no COVID you know the people flu comes through and whatever else you know they're still exposed and I think, you know, hopefully it's something that Americans will look at and say, we need to respect these people for the work they're doing, because without them, our lives would be miserable. And yeah. We would have to do all of those things. And you know, yeah. hopefully it's an awakening. 
No, nobody's on an island by themselves. With, without exactly. other human beings, we don't have shit. You got it. You, you know, it. so it's just like, you know, it, we're, we're all, we're, we all come from the same place. We're all going to end up in the same place. It's the journey in between counting on each other that is everything, you know, yeah. and, and without that, we have nothing. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So did you begin your career in technology or kind of walk, walk me through the steps of how you got to, uh, uh, got in, interested in technology? So um, I'll try and give you the short version because it's been quite a journey. Um, I was in eighth grade and I saw an article in um, uh, Popular Mechanics, a uh, one-page ad for a computer called uh, uh, Sinclair uh, computer. A little computer had 8K of memory, had a ZX81 processor in it showing my age uh, <laughs> in that. But I uh, borrowed my dad's credit card. And, <laughs> Did uh, he know about it? Uh, after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, I'd love to put this thing together. I figured I would never do anything with it because I love to tinker. I'm a tinkerer. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to put this together and you know see what it can do. And I put it together and it had basic on it and I started programming. And that, and do you remember was, how much it was? I think $98, something like that. And it was shipped from England. Yeah. So, you know, it was super, super cheap. It had a membrane keyboard. You had to have a tape recorder to store. You had to hook it up to a TV and that. And I think I spent $200 on a 16 K memory expansion of which you could only use eight K. The other eight K was used for something else. Um, I don't, I don't remember what. So I did that and all my friends in high school wanted to be engineers and electrical engineers and chemical engineers and that. And I was like, oh, that's boring for me. I'm gonna go into accounting because that's where the money is. So I started out the first couple of years in college as an accountant. And the only part of accounting I enjoyed was trying to figure out how I could steal the money without anybody <laughs> finding out. <laughs> Um, I was in accounting three, which is the second to last accounting class. And we could take computers as electives and they would count towards different credits. So I was taking all computer courses and getting IBs and A's in them. And in my accounting courses, I was getting C's and B's. And we did this accounting project and the professor at one point said, well, if you can hide $50,000 that I can't figure out how you hit not that I figure out it's missing, but how you hit it, I will give you an A on the project. Well, I took him at his word. So when the grades first came out, he flunked me. Um, and then I went into his office and I said, hey, wait a minute. You know, you said if we did this, that, and he's like, well, yeah, but I was joking. I said, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. So after going through it, he finally capitulated and he gave me an A in the class. And he told me to get out of accounting. So <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I switched over to computer science and um, ended up doing uh, an internship program that actually turned into my first full-time job at U.S. Steel, uh, writing in COBOL and doing um, steel processing in that, taking all of the data that came out of it and scheduling um you know, where, where the ingots and the coils and all of that kind of stuff were all routed and, uh, you know, reporting back, you know, 
printouts for customers that would get stuffed in envelopes and mailed out. And I've just been in love with it. I, I knew when I graduated from college that I would be in computers for the rest of my life one way or another. Maybe it wouldn't be my primary source of income, but I would be, that would, you know, to me, that was just the end all be world for me. So you talked about your first job. What was your worst job and why? Well, there's two of them. Um, my first job was also my worst. I ended up with a boss who, uh, me and him were like, uh, fire and ice. And, um, I ended up transferring not of my choice, um, to a different department. And I got feedback never to use him as a reference because he said a lot of very derogatory things about me and my boss at that time, who is my idol, um, his name is Scotty Rains. He's no longer walks the earth, but, um, he said, you know, everything he said about you was not true in that. And, um, you know, you just need to know to be careful and things of that sort, um, around, around him and, and, and that. So, uh, Scotty Rains really took me under his wing. He really helped me figure out how to take that raw technical talent and use it in the world where I could talk to people who weren't technically oriented, which was a big issue that I had because I was just so into technology. I assumed everybody else was, and that was huge benefits. I went into consulting and, you know, tons of clients would ask for me because it was like, yeah, but he understands what we're saying. These guys don't, <laughs> you know, in that. So I could, because I think I started out in accounting, I had that business acronym and um, it allowed me to make that translation. And, you know, it's become second nature for me. And I love being able to do that. I love solving problems. I, I love all of that. So that was that was the first one um, working with him. And that was about a year. And that was just royal, royal pain. The second one, um, and, you know, people may say, oh, well, you're piling on. Amazon was very good to me. Um, they lavished me with money and things of that sort. But uh, the boss that I had there, and to me, it always comes down to your boss. It's never really the company. Um, me and the boss were fire nice again um, in that. And I'll, I'll be completely honest. I hated him. I, I thought he was the absolute worst boss I've ever worked for in my entire life. And I would never work for him, nor would I recommend anybody to ever work for him. Uh, in that. So, uh, that was the worst. Um, I spent a year at Amazon the last six months. I knew I wasn't staying. It was just a matter of trying to get to my anniversary so I could get some cash out of my stock and, you know, extradite myself from that and go do something else, take some time off. Um, it was so stressful that I developed an anxiety issue in that. And, and isn't, isn't that the worst when you know, you have to stick around and this person who you know it that person doesn't deserve um what we're giving them yeah yeah but we still have to do it and then you develop anxiety you develop all these things because the 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 body is rejecting the mind is rejecting the heart is rejecting all these things you're putting it through because Consciously, we know that we have to stick around to go get that money, but the rest of us instinctively knows that we actually don't have to stick around for it, but we're forcing ourselves to go through it. Yeah. You know, and then that happens. 
Yeah, the, the the great thing is, I'm sure that you learned a lot of great lessons from what you went through. Oh yeah, on we'll how to not treat people, how to not put yourself through those things. So, can you talk about some of those things you learned from that process? Yeah, um, you know, one of the, one of the things was that that's extremely important to me, and one of the things that I looked before I joined Sote as um, you know a late joining co-founder is empathy and um I, I would say his his achilles heel was he had no empathy he just did not care what anybody else was going through and again you know this is my side of the story i'm sure he has his story to the story in that um and stuff but you know at the end of the day it was you know that you have to understand other people you have to look at people and say you don't know what you know, you don't know what happened to them this morning. You don't know what happened five minutes before they walked in here and not having empathy, not trying to put yourself in that other person's shoes. And when you can't going out and asking questions, not making assumptions. And, you know, that that's just something that puts me over the edge when somebody makes an assumption due to their lack of information. Right. And you have somebody who's telling you always, ask me questions. I will tell you anything. I'm very transparent and, you know, uh, I'm more than willing to, to share my knowledge. I'm willing to share my opinion. You don't have to accept it. You don't have to like it. It's mine. And you can take what you want from it and you can do whatever you want with that. You can label it yours. You can go and run out there and make a million dollars off of it. I don't care. I'll never come back and say, I gave that to you. That's right. Not that's not who I am. And that was just completely alien to him. It was, you know, I'm here to build my career and everybody underneath me is their sole purpose in life is to make me look better. And my sole purpose in life was to make my team look better. And we were at opposite ends of the spectrum in that, um, you know, another thing that to me was extremely important was ethics and I felt his ethics were quite questionable in a number of areas, but he had done a lot of great work for Amazon and he kind of got a pass. And, you know, one of the things we have at Sote is anybody can ask questions of anyone and anybody can challenge people's motives in a polite, professional way um, at Sote. And the reason for that is we don't want ourselves as founders to be so comfortable that we just assume we're right. We want people challenging us. We want people asking questions. We don't want to be, you know, life, there's so many temptations in life to do the wrong thing. And it's only, I mean, you hear it all the time. It's what would you do when nobody could see you doing, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's not a negative. That's just a fact of being human. And if you build in systems to make sure that you don't end up in those circumstances, you build in a system that people know they can trust and people know that, you know, if they're having a problem, that you're somebody there to talk to. And, you know, you know, at the end of the day, co-founder, janitor, whatever, everybody's a human being. And, you know, we have to keep that to me. So the big things is you always have to keep that perspective. Everybody's a human being. You don't know what they've happened in their day. Have empathy and have integrity. And to me, you know, with those key, with those three pillars, I think you'll end up having a huge career and you'll be able, you'll be somebody that people seek out to be around and to support 
and help you in the dark days. And, you know, because they know you'll help them in their dark days. I think uh, everything you just went through there is it, it, there's a lot of things that are super important there for people to listen to because there's a lot of that missing in today's communication. One of the big things that you said that I really, um, my, my ears popped up on was listening. Listening to listen, listening to learn something, not listening just to wait for your turn to respond. Right. You know, uh, I've got a ton of people in my company who are way smarter than me. Thank God. That's why we've got a great company, you know, <laughs> because I, I know what I'm good at. I also know what I lack, mm-hmm. you know, and I need to listen to these people that I've hired, that Carissa and I have hired and figure out how they can make our company better because what they're good at, I'm not good at. And thank God they're here. Um, But the other thing was that I think is missing so much in today's world is empathy. Yeah. You know, and I don't think it's missing in people so much. I think it's missing in media. I think it's missing on, you know, the, the non-transparency of people hiding behind social um, networks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, how can you not have empathy for another human being? Because I guarantee if I'm talking to somebody, there's empathy. Mm-hmm. If someone is hiding behind Facebook or Instagram or whatever they're hiding behind and not showing empathy for somebody else, it's because there's no feel. It's a cold machine that they're dealing with. And uh, I think a lot of people um, can take a lot of those lessons that you learned uh, from what you went through with, uh, you know, a couple of those horrible bosses that uh, really probably defined the rest of the way you manage people. Yeah, I hope so. You'd have to ask them. Um, <laughs> right. So. Well, you're you're probably in the position you are today because of because of those being the, the way that you have um, turned yourself into a good leader, you know, from those things. So oh, thank you. Now, I got a couple questions I throw in here that a friend of mine gave me. Uh, there's about a hundred different questions, and they just kind of pop up, and I throw them in. They're kind of little sure. fun questions. So, if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do with your life? Uh, that, that's a great question. I actually ask it. We do what's called a founders interview for all new employees to Sote, and that's one of the questions I ask them uh, in there in order to do that. Um, to me, life is all about helping, um, and that, so if I didn't, you know, money were no concern or anything along those lines, um, I would go out and target two specific areas because I can't help everywhere. Uh, the first area would be inner city kids and getting them, uh, introduced to technology and things of that sort, kids at risk, all of that stuff. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who say that and, and they do great things. And I, to me there, you can never do enough. Um, the kids are the next generation. They're the ones that are going to, you know, take this country and the world and, you know, drive it into the future and hopefully solve some of the woes that we have. Um, so that would be the first one. And then the second one um, is really something that has become really, really clear to me over the last uh, five to 10 years. Um, getting older, you know, I started like actually watching documentaries and not falling asleep um, during <laughs> and stuff. I've reached that, that point in my age. Where me too. Like, I'm oh, there. 
this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, I see so much injustice in the um, criminal system and things of that sort. And, you know, one of the things that really awoke me was um, the uh, Central Park Five and the documentary that was about the Central Park Five and how they were manipulated and their lives, you know, were damaged, if not ruined. You know, I like to call them the exonerated five now that I've done that. I've seen the program. I've read some articles. Um, there's a, a book or two that are on my list to read at some point. But I'm not a big avid reader, so it takes me a long time to get to things. But I would like to help ex-cons. You know, I don't care. You know, there's certain ex-cons I probably won't help uh, in that for certain crimes that I consider to be heinous uh, in that. But, um, you know, there's no support system for them, none whatsoever. Uh, and to come out, um, to come out of prison and have no support system other than the one that got you into prison in the first place, mm -hmm. it's why we have the recidivism rate that we do. And to me, you know, the, the entire system is stacked against it. You know, if you've committed a felony, you can never work in a financial institution. Um, you know, on almost every application, there's a question, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Now you have to make a choice. Do I lie? And put not you know check no and get this job and not go back to jail or do I tell the truth and more than likely not get the job because I was honest you know saying yeah I made a mistake well how does that how does that reinforce you know the principles that we're trying to teach them be honest be good oh but by the way if you are too bad you're you're not going to get a job you're not going to get any support you're not going to get any help and what I want to do it is you know I think in the trades industry. Um, and I think that's that's a huge place. Um, I was an avid supporter. I did my part the best I could to go out and push for California's law change that um, ex-cons can now go and get EMT certified. And the reason that's important is because a lot of con, uh, criminals get special privilege and they go out and fight our fires in California. They're a huge, huge component of that. And then they learn all of the skill, they learn all of this. It's a good paying job. And we're in desperate need of these people as the climate changes and things of that sort. They get out of prison, they can't get the job because they can't get an EMT and it's required in order. For so they still can't get an EMT right now? They can now. The law just recently changed under um, Gavin. Um, I know a lot of people don't like him right now. Um, whatever, you know, I'm not here for that. But um, him and the, 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 you know, the state legislature did change the law to where now they can. So they have a path now to where they can get a reasonable, respectable, good paying job for skills that they learned in prison. And to me, that's that's where we need to be doing this. Now, if they screw up and at that point, you know, I have no problem with throwing the book at them. I'm, you know, I'm like, look, you know, we've been over backwards to try and make this a better situation for you. And if you choose to mess it up at that point, well, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, second chances are this, that second chances. Third oh, chances. People make mistakes. I, I know a yeah. person. So uh, my background and kind of where this whole podcast came from is that I'm a recovering alcoholic yeah. and I've been sober by almost seven years now uh, by the grace of God. I know a person who, you know, is a convicted murderer. What happened was he had hit somebody they fell down hit their head and died right 
you know, his life changed completely at the age of 18 years old and he paid his price. He came out. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. You know, people make mistakes. Right. Again, empathy. Right. You have to walk just a step in that person's shoes to understand for a second what they've been through, Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, good on you. You know, I, I hope you make some, uh, make some roads there. Yeah. You know, um, I've tried doing some things, um, you know, I've, I've talked to some people in the trades industry and things of that sort. Um, at some point in the next year, I'm going to file for a, I think it's a 501c just to start getting the ball rolling. Um, you know, it's always a thing with capital. The last three years have been kind of sparse with startup world. That's just the way it is. Um, so hopefully Sote will continue to grow and build up the capital that I need in order to make those kinds of things happen. But well, when you when you go down that road, reach out to me because I've started a five hundred one c three and uh, know how to go down that whole path. Yeah, okay. So right. there, there's it's a it's a tricky road. If you do it the right way, it's much easier, and uh, they don't make any mistakes. So uh, uh, I can help you with that. So just reach out. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, you know, right now, I just don't have the time. Uh, <laughs> startup loyalty, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, thanks for asking. I really appreciate that. You've worked at some big companies like Walmart, Safeway, and Amazon, which you talked about before. You also founded, like right now, some startups. How does your mindset change as a leader from a huge company to a startup, or is there any difference at all? I don't think it's different. I think you exercise different parts of your brain. Um, you know, in a, in a large company, there's always somebody to do something for you. So you become more of a, an, an idea, a thought leader, um, you know, at the higher positions, obviously in the lower positions, you're executing in that. But um, in a startup, you've got to be both. You've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves in that. And the hard part to me for a startup that challenges, I think, most people is they get stuck in thinking that their job is what their job was, what they're good at. And it's not. Um, you know, my job, I can do technology all day long. I can code all day long because I've kept myself, you know, active in those areas and I love them. And to me, they're fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's challenging for me is advising on sales, you know, going there and balancing that thought process of, I'm not a sales guy. I hate sales. Um, you know, I, it's the last thing in the world I want to do. <laughs> Sales is the reason every one of the startups I started failed because I suck at it. <laughs> you know, it just that's just not who I am. And that so it's it's balancing that, you know, understanding and pushing because everybody needs that push. Everybody has that fear of taking that first step, and you have to help get them over that. Uh, and that against that, well, am I a poser? Am I you know, you know, I have no knowledge in this area. How dare I suggest to somebody who has a background in sales? The, the thing I found, and I found it in technology, was the people that give you the most eye-opening things are the new people, the people who don't know what not to ask. Yeah. And by <clears throat> recognizing and seeing that, I've used that skill of saying, hmm, yeah. I don't have a clue uh, how long it takes to close these things or why it takes so long. 
So I'll ask because it's not the fact that I'm going to have this nugget, but the sheer fact of that person explaining it to me and me maybe asking a stupid, apparent stupid question because I'm a newbie, then they say, oh, wait, boom, that gives me an idea. You know, how many meetings I've been in over my career, technology people, business people, all kinds of things where I've asked a potentially a stupid question and all of a sudden it's really had huge effects. Uh, there was one company, I'm not going to name them, but they were going to do some clinics and they were looking at doing them in a retail space. And I was in this meeting where we were starting to look at building out, selecting software for them to run these clinics and hooking up with the lab uh, labs that they were going to be sending samples out to and everything. And I was in the meeting and I said, you know, what are you going to do about biohazards? And the people, the person, the main person who was responsible for this idea said, what do you mean biohazard? We don't have any biohazard. And I'm like, well, I don't know anything about this, but I'm thinking somebody walking through the store with a stool sample who trips and falls and the stool sample goes all over the floor. I'm thinking that's a biohazard, you know, especially if they're sick and you don't know what's in that. I mean, you just can't mop that up and then let customers in there now, can you? Um, you know, about three months later, that whole idea was trash. I have no idea whether it had to do with my question or not. The, the person, the CEO who was running the company left at that point. And, you know, lots of things changed um, in that. But the room went quiet. Nobody had even thought about that. Right. Um, and stuff, you know. Um, to me, it, you know, that, that question, whether it was of any value or not, I don't know. But it was very informative that people weren't thinking around the corners and looking at things from an aspect of what if something went wrong? They were only looking at, oh, well, we could get, you know, we could share revenue with the revenue with the retail space because they'll be getting additional sales by customers coming in and using our service. I mean, we're making them more attractive. They're making us more attractive. Win win. And yeah, that's OK. So long as everything goes smoothly, it's, it's when things don't go smoothly that, you know, now what do you do? It's really easy to get stuck in that tunnel vision, you know, where you, uh, it happens a lot with me. Uh, I'm, I'm an idea person, you know, and it's, it's why I'm an entrepreneur. Right. And my wife always laughs and she goes, you know, you have about a hundred ideas a day. I'm like, yeah, but it, if one of them sticks, I'm good, yeah. you know, and I'll get in tunnel vision on something where I'm really interested in creating this new thing. And I, luckily I've got a lot of really smart friends around me and I bounce it off of them and they'll bring up things like you talked about that I hadn't even thought about. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I can't do that. Or that's already been done or, you know, whatever it is, but it's really fun for me to think of these things that I want to do and then go to my friends and it gives me something to talk about because I'm naive enough and sometimes ignorant enough you know, to not think too hard about it, but to talk to somebody else and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And I, I don't, I don't believe in anything being a stupid question. Yeah. You know, I, I, I when you were first talking uh, in that little segment there about, um, almost being uh, stupid questions or ignorant or whatever it is, when I started out in my career as an IT recruiter, 
I, I had come from delivering pizzas and playing in bands. You know, that, that was my career. And my first job was calling up, calling on all of these people like yourself who are very smart, who are software engineers, who have degrees, you know, bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD, all these super smart people. And I talked to one of my first mentors in this industry and said, what the hell am, what, what am I going to do talking to these guys? He goes, listen, some of these guys can't talk to another human being. They need you to go out and find these other people to come in and do this job for them. And that was the first time I had somebody explain something to me that I listened to it now and go, well, that's a really stupid question or a stupid thought. But at the time, that was exactly what I needed to say. And to be willing to put yourself out there in an uncomfortable situation and say something that might be quote unquote stupid is exactly what needed to happen. So that person could educate me on, no, you're not stupid. You need to call. And by the way, you work for me, get on the phone before I fire you, <laughs> you know? So it's, it, it's just, it, it's that growth that we all have to go through to find our way to, you know, sitting here and having this conversation today. It's funny you say that because the first two startups I did, I, I sunk about uh, three quarters of a million dollars in between the two of them because everybody told me, and I knew better than them, it was my arrogance lesson that, um, you know, they were bad ideas and they would never fly. And um, they were right and I was wrong. <laughs> so it was a humbling experience and uh, took a big hit on the, on the, the pocketbook too. Uh, so yeah, I, I know exactly. I, I have lots of ideas all of the time and the, I've learned that the first thing I do is I go Google them and sure enough, you know, 10 other people have already done it. It's like, okay, see, that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a good idea that somebody's already done. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about it a little bit before, but my wife, Carissa and I founded it Avalon. Uh, we're an it staffing company. Um, You've known Carissa for a long time, and like we said before, you worked together. She um, was a service provider at Safeway when you worked there. Mm -hmm. Now, as an executive leader, what do you look for in a staffing partner? So to me, the most, most important thing is um, that, they're, that they listen. Um, and, you know, it's not a, a one-and-done type transaction. You, know, you, you hear this all of the time, oh, relationship, relationship, relationship. But it, it is true. It, it, it's what it's all about. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if a vendor is more trouble than they're worth, then you got to get rid of them. That's mm -hmm. all there is to it. doesn't matter how friendly you are. doesn't matter how nice they are. doesn't matter what they give you for Christmas or whatever else. It, it really comes down to, you know, do they want to partner with you? And you know, it's to me super, super important that there is that communication back and forth between the vendor and, you know, the, the consumer of the services and things of that sort. The other thing, especially in, in your industry, is that you're not a, a resume mill. You know, I've had these vendors where, you know, they send me 20 resumes and it's like, why am I paying you to find me this person if I've got to do all of the work? Right. right? So 
they're they're in it for the quick buck. They're not in it for the relationship. They're not willing to do the legwork, the homework, as I like to refer to it. When somebody's in the staff and they're like, I ask a question and they're like, well, no, I didn't do that. I said, so you haven't done your homework yet, have you? <laughs> so to me, you know, it's it's the relationship and the homework. And to me, it's a package. So when somebody comes in and they say, hey, you know, we want to provide this service to you. And, and I get probably 20 emails a day of people telling me how they can make my IT or my engineering department more efficient. And it's like, you don't even know what my engineering department is. Sit down and talk with me first, understand what's going on. Right. You know, I, I'm in a kind of a unique situation where, you know, Carissa and I did chat at one point and she said, Hey, can we help you out? And I said, I would love you to, but I need people in Kenya. Do you have anybody in Kenya? And she said, no. <laughs> and that, and I said, well, you know, and I didn't expect it to, but you know, we do have some staff here in the U S and, you know, um, in that, but at this point, you know, we're a seed startup. Um, we need boots on the ground that are full-time that, you know, we're building our leadership ranks for, you know, two years, five years, 10 years from now. Uh, and that, and, you know, IT services probably don't play very well. Plus, you know, we're not stable, you know, we're on a runway, we're not profitable. Right. Uh, and that we're, you know, we're a seed company and that's what we do. We're, we're doing all of the things we need to do to achieve series A, um, in that. So, but yeah, to me, that's the most important things. And that's the thing I really liked about Carissa was she was always willing to put that extra effort in. She was willing to sit down and listen to me. When we had a staffing problem, she sat down and talked to me about what she could do to help solve that staffing problem. When we had a consultant that didn't necessarily work out, she was right there and supportive. And, you know, it wasn't like, well, you know, can you give them another week? Can you do this? Can you do that? She was very much, no, I understand that this is what it is. And you've already done those things. So I'm not going to try and do this. I would like the opportunity to backfill this person and I'm going to try and help you. You know, I, I mean, in one circumstance, I believe she said, you know, I'll take care of this. I'll, I'll take care of the whole thing. And I said, no, I owe more than that to this person. They've done some good work. It's just their approach to the world and Safeway's approach to the world are not compatible. And that happens. And, you know, and that person ended up going to work at uh, Apple and a few other companies and had a really good career. Uh, just we weren't the right place for them. Yeah. And, and that, so we worked together and that, that was, that to me was a huge, huge, um, benefit that, uh, Carissa brought that, you know, I can't wait for the day that we get to work, work together again. And just, there's not an opportunity yet. Yeah. She's one of the best customer service account executives I've ever seen. And that's the way with it. We, we run it Avalon. So yeah. my background is 25 years of it recruiting. Hers is like 15 years of account management. So that was the, that it, our marriage was great and the marriage to bring together the company was great too. So uh, I appreciate you going into that detail. Yeah. So let's talk about Sote for a little bit. So mm -hmm. you're the co-founder and CTO. And uh, I saw on the website that uh, Sote is Swahili for all of us. Yes. yes. So how did the whole idea of Sote come about? It, it almost seems to me like uh, one of these sitting around a fire having a stogie, somebody says, hey, we should do this. Because, I mean, I'm looking at the whole thing. It looks like it's a pretty big idea. It is a big idea. Um, that's one of the things that attracted to me. Uh, it's potentially a multi-billion dollar idea. And I plan on writing, writing it to that success. 
Um, it actually started with the original founder of the company. His name is Felix. He's a Kenyan. And um, he started out as a pilot and got the software bug, moved to California after having moved to Oklahoma from Kenya with no friends, no nobody uh, in that and um, worked his way through the ranks. And he said, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys that just builds a company where it's all about me and I make a shitload of money and that. And I'm sure he could do that. He definitely got that talent. Um, I want to do something that changes the course of Africa um, in that, that, you know, there's lots of stuff going on right now in Africa. There's always been the, the draining of resources from the continent. There's, you know, all, all kinds of different things. They have issues just like every other continent has issues. Um, so he wanted to change that. And he um, wrote an article, I believe, and I could be getting this wrong because I came into the picture about a year and a half after most of this happened. Uh, he wrote an article and um, the other co-founder responded to it. And they worked together for six, seven months and kind of kicked in ideas around and things of that sort. And they came up with, um, you know, basically being a technology company who focuses on logistics in Africa, um, which nobody does. And um, so they got some seed cash or pre-seed cash and kind of built a prototype um, in that. Um, it was well received, uh, but it was clear that the path that we needed for rapid growth wasn't there. Uh, we were kind of at the bottom of the food chain trying to fight our way up, which is a difficult, difficult place. Um, Mecca, who is the second person who joined um, in that, they found themselves in a situation where they had a software product and they wanted to scale it. Um, it was produced by a consulting company um, who does you know fixed bid work in about three weeks. They took a product that did something completely different it kind of made it work. And um, one of their investors and I are good friends. We've known each other for years. And I happened to be in a situation where I said, you know, I'm tired of doing consulting right now. I'm tired of the full-time gig. You know, I'm looking for something I can really seek my teeth into. He said, well, I've got this company in my portfolio. Why don't you take a look at them? It was a couple of others, but those weren't matches. And I, you know, we met. I said, you know, this is what I can do. This is, you know, what I can add, work together, um, basically gutted that product, threw it out because it wouldn't scale. There's just no way and started us down that road. Um, you know, brought in, uh, one of my best friends in the technology world, um, Daniel, uh, I'm not going to use his last name because he, uh, he may not want people knowing <laughs> that he was working two jobs at the same time. <laughs> uh, and that he did all of the UI stuff, the front end, which I'm not, that's just not where I like to be. And I did all of the back end stuff and we started building out a product. We tested out that market, uh, found it didn't really work. We pivoted into where we always wanted to go, which is the logistics side. We bought a company to get a logistics license because all governments require you to be licensed in order to do that work. And um, we told that story to a bunch of investors for our seed round. Uh, they liked it. They see the vision. They see the fact that we want to build a company that benefits society as well as makes shitloads of money. So, um, and to me, that's where I am in my career. And, you know, I could do pretty much anything if I'm willing to move there to do it. Um, but this is what I want to do. And I want to do it because I think it, 
it's going to make a difference. And even if it only makes a difference in one person's life, that's great. Um, you know, I've gotten to implement a lot of things that I've believed in and I've read about over my career. Um, not going to go into those. That's a podcast all in of itself <laughs> <laughs> in that, but, um, they seem to be working and I'm really happy about that. And I'm having the best time of my life. Well, I think that, uh, from, from what I've read, I mean, Sote can change a ton of people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. uh, a really, really better, uh, there, there's nothing like it today, right? Yeah, no, we are the only startup in Africa who has a logistics and forwarding licensing that is digitizing. There are other startups. Um, there's a company called Lori who is working in the transport. They're kind of the Uber of transport because, you know, once you get the container off the ship, you got to get it on the roads and on the rail. So once it gets off the rail, you still got to get it on the road. So they're focused in that area and, you know, they're, they're kind of at the bottom of the market fighting their way up. Um, they had a big head start on us. We don't want to be the Ubers because no offense to Uber, but in my opinion, it's, it's leveraging other people's capital to make yourself rich versus bringing everybody along for the ride Right. Uh, in that. So um, I just don't agree with their business model. It's great for them, great for their investors, but it's not for me uh, in that. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're doing that. Um, we've got a, a lot of ambitious goals for the next 18 months when uh, we're looking to, to do our series A and uh, I, I know we will, we will make it one way or the other. We've been through a lot of trials and tribulations over the last two, two and a half years. Um, and that, and every time you know, we figured out a way. And to me, that's the secret of entrepreneurship is no matter what that door is, no matter how thick that wall is, you either find a way to go over it, under it, around it, or through it. And you just don't stop until, until you're dead. <laughs> that's all there is to it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's going to be exciting to watch what happens here in the coming years. So uh, we're, we're behind you a hundred percent. So just, uh, just keep on going, baby. Oh yeah. No, uh, I am. I have a phrase that I say to my wife, Chumbawamba. It's uh, a music song. Chumbawamba. Uh, yeah. Chumbawamba. Yeah. And basically the lyrics of the song is you knock me down, but I get right back up. <laughs> uh, and, that, and to me, that's kind of my life. So I've been knocked down a lot of times, but I get right back up. So, so, um, what was the most notable event that led you to where you are today? I would say the passing of my first wife. Um, I was a much different person before then. Um, I didn't understand what was going on in the world. I was, I mean, I was happy outwardly, but I think there was a lot of anger about things that I didn't understand previously in my life. And I mean, I was sympathetic, but I wasn't empathetic. Mm. And having gone through that whole journey, um, you know, over a multi-year process and having that happen, I learned that life is life and you can moan and groan and complain about it and blame other people and say people are trying to take things away from you and be all of those negative things. Or you can sit back and you can say, you know what, I'm not going to play that game. And I'm going to be positive about life and I'm going to do the best I can. Doesn't mean I don't have bad days. My wife has said, Hey, you're being awful negative today. You're <laughs> awful sarcastic today. What's the problem? You know, and it's like, Oh, thanks. Thanks for, you know, kind of smacking me in the face and waking me up because it's not who I want to be. And uh, that, that was probably the most important event, although it being, you know, it was very tragic. Um, 
I think it made me realize who I could be as opposed to who I was. Yeah. Count the blessings for all the moments that you got to spend together. Yeah. You know, and the lessons you get to take from it. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting when you talk about, you know, I, I'm a pretty positive person. It seems like the person that I'm least positive around sometimes is my wife, who I love the most in this world. And she also says sometimes, like, why did you just say that to me? I'm like, yeah, why did you just say that? <laughs> you know? I've been there. <laughs> oh, no, it's ridiculous. If, if sometimes I, can... I don't understand why you say the things you say. I'm like, You're right. <laughs> yeah. I don't either. <laughs> I've, I've got a good friend of mine who says that uh, he goes, he goes I, I carry a bottle of water around with me wherever I go. And whenever I'm about to hear my wife ask me a question, I'll take a big swig of water just so I can't talk back to her. Because he goes, it's a better idea for me to keep my mouth shut than it is to I say that's something. A good idea. I, might, I might have to take that out. <laughs> so when, when you're managing someone, what do you think is more important, uh, book smarts or street smarts? Um, actually neither, uh, passion is all I care about. I hire people based off of passion. Um, I've taken people into my department who knew zero about technology. Um, there was one person at Walmart, they were about to be pushed out the door and my boss came to me and said, you know, I think this person might excel. And I had a small data support team where when system data got messed up, this team would go in and fix it. He knew nothing about that. And, um, you know, we worked together and he knew his situation. He didn't agree with it. He was very angry about it at the time because he felt he'd gotten a raw deal. Um, you know, that's, that's what his is. And I said, look, I don't care about that. What I care about is your passion to be successful and to move forward. And so long as you do that, I will back you hundred percent and we'll figure it out. I don't expect you to know anything, but I do expect you to have the passion to want to learn. He was fantastic. Within six months, he was running circles around everybody else in my department, in that particular department. Um, he ended up becoming uh, a uh, scrum coach and, uh, you know, scrum master and all of those things. Has a great career. I believe he's still with the same company uh, in that. Um, to me, that's the thing is passion. You give me anybody with passion straight out of school. 20 years of that, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, they have passion, they'll learn. You know, they'll take their street smarts and whatever book smarts they have and they'll figure it out. Because at the end of the day, if you believe that you can do it, you can do it. Right. I mean, we as human beings, we would not be where we are. We wouldn't have the society and the world around us if people didn't have passion to say, I'm going to figure this out. Right. Uh, in that, so. So one of the things you got passionate about is the Beatles. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm a huge Beatle fan. Oh, what's uh, what's your favorite album? Um, wow, that's tough. Uh, I'd have to say Abbey Road. Yeah, well, I love so many of them. And that you know, White Album, Abbey Road, um, uh, Yellow Submarine. You know, all all of that stuff. Um, it's my mom's fault. She used to listen to the Beatles. Uh, drink RC Cola and eat tuna fish sandwiches when she was pregnant with me. <laughs> so do you like I, tuna fish sal sandwiches and RC? Uh, yep. <laughs> to me, that's like heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that's my ambrosia and, uh, and that. And, you know, I love the Beatles. I've, 
I've infected uh, at least one of my boys with the Beatles too. Uh, it was funny. He would go to school and people would say, he'd say, nobody knows in school what the Beatles are. And I'm like, well, you should teach them. <laughs> so he would play on his little iPod, you know, and it's like, wow, that's, that's really good music and stuff. So turned on a lot of people to the Beatles uh, in that. And, you know, I don't know. It just, you know, they came to the United States, I think in 1964, I was born in 1964. Um, and it's just been a, a lifelong passion for me. I've never gotten to see them in concert. Um, I got to see Beatlemania. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. That was back in the eighties. I love that. That was fantastic. Um, at one point, um, I had every album they ever, um, published and it's probably still up in my attic somewhere and, and that. Um, if they're even playable or who knows. Um, but yeah, I, I have every song they have. I was like the day the anthology came out, I went out and paid full price for it, which I don't pay full price for anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it just, you know, a Beatles song comes on. I know all of the words. So sing along on the radio with as horrible as my voice is. Well, what's, and, what's your, what's your favorite song? Do you have one yeah, favorite song? Yeah. Yesterday. I mean, you know, it's the, it is the prototypical. Um, uh, know, did you see? Did you see that movie? Oh yeah, yeah, I loved it. That's it right. It was a yeah. great oh, movie. I, I want to see it again. I, I I wanted to buy it, but my wife wouldn't. She discouraged me. It's not that she wouldn't let me. She discouraged me because she knew she'd be watching it like twenty times a year. <laughs> I've watched. I've watched it numerous times, and it's so refreshing in this this world of regurgitated stuff from. Yeah. 60s 70s 80s and 90s you know it's like it was such a fresh idea you know where it's like the world starts over and nobody remembers the beatles songs yeah, yeah. it was like what yeah. but it was so fun yeah it was i mean I, I would say for you know for that type of genre it was probably the the best movie i've seen in 15 years yeah it was so good so what, uh, got a couple last questions here for you, and they're kind of the same as I ask everybody. Uh -huh. um, what is one of the last books that you've read that really inspired you that you'd like other people to take a look at? Um, it's the one I'm reading right now, Life uh, 3.0. It, uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but it, it talks about a world where... Um, machine learning, AI, all of those kinds of things and uh, kind of takes over and then it goes through and it analyzes it. I haven't finished reading it yet, so um, I can't spoil it because I don't know the ending myself. <laughs> but um, Life 3.0. 3.0. Um, it, it paints a world where, you know, all of the fears that people have about uh, AI and machine learning could happen, not necessarily bad. But, in, you know, having read about half of the book so far, it also talks about the realism behind all of that. People forget that computers are not hardwired. You know, they don't have an infinite power supply. And, you know, all of this talk about how they're going to take over and everything. Uh, we have an on-off switch. All we got to do is throw it and game over. It's not the Matrix. They're not, you know... They're not going to go out and build factories and create armies of people who run around and, you know, protect the, the electrical plugs. You know, it just it's it, 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 it just farcical. 
and people aren't thinking about, it. you know, it's, it's like back in the eighties when I was a kid, everybody was like, Oh, the TV is destroying everybody's minds and everything along those lines. And, you know, they started running public service commercials that said, you know, you can turn it off and read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But know? I won't get my information. I need this information so bad. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and that, so, you know, I think there's a lot of hype out there, just like there always is when there's something new that people don't understand. There's people who want to take advantage of people's ignorance of a topic. And, you know, you look back at Y2K, prime example. Oh, yes. Yeah. Airplanes are going to be falling yeah. out of the sky. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the classics, you know. And uh, I think AI and machine learning are the same thing. Will it benefit humankind? Yeah, definitely will. You know, will quantum computing, if they can ever get it to work, um, will that change the world that we're in? Yeah, dramatically. But at the end of the day, I'll run on power. And so long as you control the power switch, there ain't nothing they can do. Well, yeah. I go back to um, just the at law of averages. There's a lot more good people in the world than there are bad people. There's going to be a couple bad people that oh, yeah. try to steal money, try to take over, whatever it is. There's a lot more good people that are trying to better humanity mm -hmm. with all this technology and you know the the people that i work with are all good people the people i talk to are all good people I, i'm yet to talk to a bad person you know that i've worked with for i don't know 25 years now of being in this business I, i've met very few bad people yeah i kind of look at the world that 99.9 percent .9 of the people on the face of the earth are good people 0.1% of that 99.9 do bad things because of circumstances that they get caught up in and that there's, yeah, a 0.1% out there who really just don't give a shit about anybody else. Right. The psychopaths or the narcissists or whatever else. And normally it's because they have, you know, an issue that is putting them in the world that they're putting them in. Right. And, you know, I, so I try not to say, you know, it's hard for me to say that a, a psychopath is not a bad person, but I, I also struggle with saying that because there are things you can do to help that person, but you've always got to remember that, you know, it's a real disorder and they are a psychopath. And if you turn your back on them, they may kill you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that's not good. I don't know how you slice it, but that's not good. So, yeah. So I, I'm going to be uh, asking you the last question, which is the same last question I asked everybody. This is the True Ambition Podcast. And uh, I talk to people who are passionate, who are successful. And as we're maturing uh, from beginning of our life and career to where you're at today, ambitions change. So what I'd like to do is ask you <coughs> today, being through what you've been through, being at the different places you've been in your life, what is your true ambition moving forward, both in your personal life and in your professional life? So my personal life, you know, I've already kind of talked about that, helping people. Um, to me, it's, it's not an ambition. It's a lifelong journey just to be a better person and always be self-reflective. Um, some people would say, you know, maybe I'm not. I would love to hear from those people because that's an opportunity for me to improve. Uh, for anybody who happens to see the podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Um, 
in that, but, um, you know, I would say, so yeah, to help people that that's my ultimate goal. A lot of people have helped me. I wouldn't be where I was, you know, where I am if they hadn't helped me. And, um, you know, I'm very much, I believe it's team. Um, we talked about that earlier on the podcast so far as professionally, um, professionally to prove that the ideas and concepts that I'm introducing at SOTE, at least for my engineering team, and we're using in other areas in the company too, do work. Um, I have been a big proponent of remote working for over a decade. Uh, and in 2016, I said, that's it. I'm never going into the office again, other than for a client visit. I just, I'm not going to do that. And if that means I don't get work, then I don't get work. And there were some pretty, very, very lean years for a technology guy who, you know, probably has a lot of experience, but people were just, well, no, if you won't come and work and sit in my office, I'm, I'm not going to give you this contract. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to work there. Right. So it's just that. I love COVID. It's brought the, the veil off of people's eyes that remote work is great. Um, there's huge benefits. There's also huge challenges, just like working in an office, you know, uh, in that. So getting back to, you know, my true ambition is again, proving out that you can do things differently than the traditional corporate, you know, HR, you know, these are the rules thou shall not cross this line, you know, you know, it's sorry, this is the policy. If you don't like it too bad that, you know, those things just, they don't make sense. Um, one of the things is that I will share is we have flat management. My teams manage themselves. They're professionals. Why do they need a babysitter? To me, that is, is so ancient of a concept. And there's plenty of literature and science out there that says that's not it. So that's my true ambition is to try these things out, do experiments. Maybe they work, maybe they don't, but um, try and make uh, a workplace that is something that I wanted my whole career and I never got to experience. So. Well, that's a great answer and uh, it's been a great podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Uh, we're going to keep an eye on Sote and uh, watch the journey and watch the growth and we're super excited for it. So. You guys just keep on uh, keep on moving forward, and uh, good things will come. Yeah, you keep doing this because I really enjoy uh, while I'm coding and in meetings and stuff, listening to you in the background and your interviews. They've they've been very insightful. I've I've known a couple of the people that you've interviewed, and uh, it was great to hear their perspective of of the world. Wonderful. Well, that's what it's for, and I, I appreciate uh, hearing that feedback as well. Yeah, it's a great program. Keep it up. All right. Well, thank you, Scott, and. Uh, Thanks to all of you for uh, tuning in to the True Ambition Podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I